Jesus said, come, let us go across to the other side. And they did. With no apparent purpose or reason, even though it was evening and a storm was afoot, Mark didn't bother to report any objections on the part of the disciples. And as far as we know, they were perfectly eager to embark on a dangerous boat trip to the other side of the Sea of Galilee for the singular reason that Jesus told them to. Now, of course, we're familiar with Jesus's MO. He called fishermen from their nets and tax collectors from their coffers and women from their kitchens. And based on the biblical record that we have, most of them apparently followed him without any objection. Nevertheless, the completely unquestioning willingness of the disciples to row their little boat right into the center of the storm kind of defies credulity for me. This because I've spent the better part of the week before last in Southern California listening to the stories of people who also crossed to the other side of a body of water. They crossed the well-guarded Rio Grande River and while they too know, knew that the journey was risky, they always had really good reasons for making it. Heard one story of crossing to the other side from Nancy, a young Episcopal priest who's a DACA recipient. She had no choice but to cross the border because she was only five when her parents brought her to the US from Mexico. Heard from Alex, a young Honduran shopkeeper who'd been threatened, threatened with execution by a criminal gang if he did not sell drugs for them. I heard from Olinda, who'd suffered from domestic abuse at the hands of both her father and her husband and had to flee with her little daughter, Idalia. Their reasons for crossing international boundaries were specific to their life circumstances to the politics of their country of origin, but common in this one respect, they all wanted to live. And surely this is what the disciples wanted too, no? It's the only way that Mark's gospel makes sense to me. They were seeking life and they knew of no other way to get it except to follow Jesus. Even across dangerous waters after dark, Lord, to whom can we go? Peter asked rhetorically in John's gospel. You have the words of eternal life. So how very awful it must have been for them to discover just when things on that boat had gotten really scary that Jesus had fallen asleep. They had entrusted their lives to him and yet still had to ask, do you not care that we are perishing? Wake up, wake up, I can imagine their anguished cry. It's getting really scary out there. Listen and wake up. Now we know that Jesus was a sleeper as well as an eater and a drinker and a teacher and a prayer. He was human. So the fact of his resting would hardly be noteworthy, but for the context of the storm which Mark would have understood his hearers to understand as people steeped in Hebrew scripture did. That is to say, they'd know 
that the storm he described was both, a li was both literal bad weather and also a metaphor for all those dangerous watery things, the great flood and the chaos of creation. And in the midst of all this real and metaphorical risk, Jesus, for whom the disciples had abandoned all caution, Jesus was sound asleep. <sighs> Can't we all identify with that feeling of crying to, aloud to God in scary moments and encountering nothing? Or at best, a profound silence that suggests that God is present, but maybe not really paying attention to us? This is the reality of our human relationship with God. We don't control when and how God wakes us up and shows up, shows up. But lest I'm tempted to wallow in despair over that perceived absence or inertia of God, I can always think of Job face to face with a whirlwind as he was this morning. The story we heard this morning follows 37 chapters of what could only be described as permissive torture. So we have Job, who was a demonstrably good man who suffered both the mistreatment of Satan and also the misunderstanding of his friends. And while Job and his friends debated the cause and meaning of his sufferings for about 35 chapters, God remained utterly silent. Napping? Negotiating more tests with Satan? We don't know. But we do know that at this point in the story of Job, the resolutely righteous Job, that good man, was growing pretty weary of the theological debate. Ultimately, it was not theology, but the personal revelation of God, what theologians call theophany, that changed everything for God, for Job. Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? God rhetorically challenged Job. I want to say that's not an especially pastoral response, in my opinion. If uh, any of you come to me saying that you're feeling really tortured by circumstances and God is absent, and I say that to you, call the bishop. <laughs> but the wind, the wind and water, but when we have seen and heard from the living God, the fact that we don't control the wind and water is actually no longer determinative of our faith, as was the case of Job. The revelation of God's very self, that revelation calms the storms, both the outward and the inward ones. Theophany is manifested in our lives in peace and perspective-taking and power to persevere, even in the midst of apparent chaos. Job's theophany was not some kind of abstract, like, idea of God. In fact, the Hebrew name for the God who finally spoke to him in chapter 38 was Yahweh, the same name of the God who told Moses, I am who I am. Now, the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, has lots of other ways of naming God, but at this moment in Job's harrowing story, 
He hears from the God who came and, in fact, still does come with personality and power. This is the God of Jesus who eats and drinks and sleeps and wakes and calms the storm. I think maybe I met that Jesus among the storytellers I heard from last week in Los Angeles. His name was Jose Luis, but I recognized him as Jesus because he had all but died and yet lived. He stood before our group, solidly balanced on a prosthetic leg, with his remaining limbs and strong chest and shoulders, a reminder of the athlete he had once been. He told us of the threat from violent gangs that forced him to leave his native El Salvador. He told us of the harrowing train ride on the freight train known as La Bestia, La Beast, that carried him through Mexico and from which he fell and lost his right arm and leg. He told us of two years of surgery and rehab in Mexico and of his ultimately successful attempt to cross into the United States. And then he told us of everything he missed. He missed his family. He missed playing sports. And while we, who were kind of crying up a storm listening to him talk, Jose, remained, Jose Luis remained as calm as Jesus, except for one thing except that all the while he was speaking, he was fumbling with a smartphone using the few remaining fingers on the hand that had been mangled while he reached under the train attempting to retrieve his severed limbs. Eventually, he was able to manipulate that device into playing the instrumental accompaniment for a song he wanted to sing for us, a song of the love and faithfulness of God, song of theophany. Jose Luis reminded me of what it means to follow Jesus, who leads us not into safety, but into solidarity. Jesus, who himself crossed the seeming, seemingly impenetrable border from holy to human, and in the process, stirred up enough of a political storm to get himself killed, but that storm did not have the final word any more than the storm on the Sea of Galilee that night. My friends, there are no shortage of storms right now. Real storms. I bear witness as someone who is still adjusting to the ever-surprising Portland summer weather Political storms, psychological storms, spiritual storms. I know I'm not the only one at Trinity feeling kind of storm-tossed this week. But the good news is all of us are in the boat together, so to speak. Actually, did you know that the architectural term nave, the one that describes where you're sitting, the principal space in a church, comes from the Latin word for ship, and the truth that we remember and reenact every Sunday morning is that Jesus really is here with us in this boat. Jesus is here with us. 
in word and bread and wine and bodies. Jesus is here in us. We are the way in which he shows up in person now. So let Job remind us that there is perspective when God shows up. Let Mark remind us that there is power when human beings wake up. We don't have to fear when we hear the voices of people like Alex and Paulina and Idalia and Olinda and Jose Luis telling us, crying out to us that their people are perishing. Instead, we can listen. We can cry. We can love. We can change. We can gather at places like Sheridan Correctional Center where Dean Nathan and many of our parishioners are this morning and pray for adequate pastoral care for refugee fathers separated from their families. We can insist, we can insist on reasonable and humane immigration policies. We can contribute to the reunification of families. We can invest in the fair treatment of all children we can hear the cries, wake up, and claim all the power of God to calm the storm. Amen.